Phishing attacks are up, but the methods used to wage these attacks are changing. The anti-phishing working group finds that hackers are fine-tuning their methods and are varying their schemes among international markets. Phishers are not automating their attacks by overtaking legitimate websites and breaking into web servers that host domains. And I'm here today with the APWG's Paul Ferguson, who explains why these new phishing trends are spurring alarm. Paul, back in October, the APWG actually issued a report about international phishing trends, noting that phishing attacks had jumped 12% during the first half of 2012 when compared with the first half of 2011. What can you tell us about these findings, and do you expect those comparisons for the second half of 2012 to yield similar results? Actually, yeah, I do expect them to reveal similar results. The threat window, which is the time when the fish are actually active and harvesting credentials from victims that they're targeting, is actually shrinking. So that means the time that the fish are actually active is shrinking. And overall, the volume of fish seems to be shrinking but it seems like the victimization is actually growing. And I know that's kind of counterintuitive, but it just means that exactly what you referenced, the fishers and the criminals themselves that are perpetrating these schemes are are fine-tuning their methodologies. And actually what they're doing is this is primarily just low-hanging fruit for them. They're fine-tuning their methodologies to grow their victim base without using as many resources on their end. What are fishers doing to enhance their methods, and how are these legitimate websites actually being taken over? Well, it's not necessarily websites themselves, but actually just victim PCs and Macs and things that are actually being used in botnets called spam bots. They're actually generating the spam. A rather large percentage of it is. I mean, every day there's a new campaign using a brand impersonation like sending spam under the guise of like the Better Business Bureau or the IRS or law enforcement agency or UPS or FedEx. And they happen to find that right times of year when people are more susceptible to falling for those ruses. Another part of it is actually websites. There are actually some websites that are, again, low-hanging fruit with outdated versions of software that are easily compromised by even the, the least sophisticated hackers to be able to use to perpetrate other crimes to include spamming and phishing. Now, you made an interesting point here that I'd like for you to clarify a bit. Are we beginning to see more compromises of Apple computers? Is that something that's that's a new trend in the industry, or is it just basically it's been a misnomer that they can't be infected? Uh, it's absolutely a misnomer. I mean, it may have been true at one point in time, but it wasn't because of a, any technical factor. Criminals are not stupid, per se, and they're going to go after the largest installed base. But what we've been seeing lately is we're seeing cross-platform software that is like operating system agnostic, things like Java and Flash and I mean we're coming into the HTML5 era. These are cross-platform technologies that don't really care what the operating system is. They only care what the plugins are in the browsers and things like that. So it can be on an Android system, it can be on Linux or Apple Mac OS X. It would be a Windows. So these are cross-platform technologies that are also suffering, uh, you know, what I would call the tragedy of the masses. It can be used cross-platform, and so the criminals are taking advantage of that to compromise mobile platforms as well as Mac OS X, as well as Windows and, and other operating systems as well. Now, going back to what we were talking about earlier as far as these websites that have been taken over, the same types of methods have been used in the recent distributed denial-of-service attacks that have been waged against leading U.S. banks. What would you say, Paul, is the core vulnerability that this online environment needs to address? Poor internet hygiene. That's what I call it. 
it's a case of people in, you know putting up a website, you know whatever it is, you know your own blog or uh, you know using WordPress or standing up a small medium business website. It really doesn't matter what it is, but there's a core set of technologies and vulnerable extensions and plugins to like Joomla and WordPress that people who are using these platforms are not doing the proper care and feeding to keep the software revisions current. And there's a constant background radiation noise on the Internet of of people with bad intentions that are constantly just scanning for these vulnerabilities. And when they find them, they can use them to inject code and get themselves administrative privileges on these websites and then use them to perpetrate other crimes, whether it's spamming, phishing, launching denial of service attacks, or either injecting code that redirects people's browsers to other exploit kits and things of that nature. So that's really become a huge, huge problem these days, and it's going to take a very large community effort to get the awareness level up to the point where people are not facilitating these crimes unwittingly any any further. We have a big task ahead of us. And would you say, Paul, that outdated versions of WordPress and Joomla, for instance, are most often to blame for these types of website compromises? It varies. It's not necessarily the core software themselves. There's a whole laundry list of like vulnerable Joomla extensions. So it may not necessarily be Joomla in and of itself, but there are plugins to like Joomla that people use, and there are plugins and add-ons to like WordPress, like Tim Thumb and other things like that. A lot of people think about you know their laptop or their browser or their operating system every Patch Tuesday when you have to install updates. But they need to take that same mentality and apply it to other web-based software platforms as well because those are now becoming the compromise vector of choice for people who want to perpetrate other crimes. But you have to remember, a lot of these websites are sitting in data centers with access to a lot of bandwidth. So the damage they can inflict on their targets is much larger than some residential broadband user sitting on a cable modem. Now going back to some of the trends that were noted in this report that came out at the end of 2012, Once a legitimate site is actually overtaken by fishers, exactly how are these attacks compromising shared hosting? It's any number of ways. A lot of them are just, in the case of phishing, it's just, you know, they can create a fish in a directory somewhere. And once the spam goes out, the fish, spam fish, whatever you want to call it, says, you've reached the limit on your email box storage. Please click here to enter in your password and ID so that we can increase your disk allowance or what have you. And it'll redirect them to this you know, template they've created on a compromised website somewhere. And the problem that causes is you have to do much more surgical uh, mitigation on that. Instead of saying, I want this domain taken down, you really can't take down the domain or the IP because a lot of it's in shared hosting environments. Well, you may have one IP address hosting 10,000 domains, and they've gotten access to like one or two installations of software and one or two domains in these shared hosting environments. So it makes it much more difficult on the mitigation side to make that stuff go away. To get the attention of people who's responsible for the site, who's responsible for the domain, usually requires a little bit more effort. So what happens is the, the people who are approaching these crimes understand this because it maximizes their window of opportunity. It takes longer to respond. It takes longer to mitigate. The criminals know how to maximize the window of opportunity here. And then what about social networking? How are social networking vulnerabilities playing a role in some of these phishing upticks? 
Well, the biggest vulnerability of social networking is a human being. People get used to getting like Facebook messages from their friends. Social networking has pretty much trained people to expect messages from people they're following or topics they're interested in or celebrity events or just, you know, natural disasters or what have you. So people become accustomed to clicking on shortened links in Twitter and links in Facebook, which may impersonate a friend or a topic or things that they may be interested in. And that's what we call it social engineering. People get trained into the social engineering aspect of clicking on things they probably shouldn't have. And that's where the whole Stop, Think, Connect campaign came into playing, is that we're trying to get people to think before they click. Is this really from my friend? Is this really what I think it is? Instead of just you know mindlessly clicking on things and having some criminal now using your PC or your web server or what have you now facilitating other crimes. So it's a really serious problem, and we need to do probably a better educational campaign overall. And this is a nice segue to my next question, which relates to spear phishing. Spear phishing campaigns continue to be an issue, and banking institutions are often the most targeted, or at least they have been. Is this a trend that you see growing? Actually, it is growing, but it's really hard to get visibility into those because they are targeted. They're not just these, you know, wide cast nets to get, you know, just as many victims as possible. A lot of the targeted campaigns are not necessarily against financial institutions, believe it or not, anymore. A lot of them now are coming business on business or national state actors on business for intellectual property theft, defense contractors, dissidents, things of that nature to gain intelligence or competitive advantage and exfiltrate data that may assist them in furthering their own cause, whether it be uh, nationalistic or hacktivist or a competitive advantage to get, say, for instance, blueprints for some new weapon design or something. We've seen a really large uptick in those type of spear phishing attacks in the past couple of years. What steps are organizations taking, Paul, from what you've seen to help mitigate some of these spear phishing risks? One of the messaging things that we're trying to explain to people is, I mean, for the most part, if it, from an organizational perspective, you have to know what normal looks like in your traffic patterns before you can ever pick out the abnormal. And if people were looking at their traffic and analyzing their logs, you know, on a daily basis and setting up the proper alarms to to flag on the abnormal, like authentication failures and traffic going to places or coming from places that is not normal, they could probably catch some of this stuff a lot faster than they're catching it now. I saw some statistics the other day. A lot of these people have been compromised for anywhere from three to nine months before they even find out about it, primarily because they're not looking at their traffic. And again, to understand what abnormal is, you have to know what normal looks like. So a lot of the folks in the IT spaces for these organizations really need to put in the technology into place that monitor their traffic patterns, monitor their logging, and understand what normal looks like so they can flag the abnormal occurrences. And that would be a good first step. Netherwood also noted that attacks vary oftentimes from country to country. How are these attacks that you've been tracking varying, and are the targeted organizations different depending on the country? It's not necessarily country per se as it is culture because, say, for instance, the phishing and uh, malicious attacks that come out of, say, Portuguese-speaking countries are different than the ones in Chinese-speaking countries are different from the ones coming out of Russian-speaking countries versus ones coming out of, like, Dutch or German or French or, or English-speaking countries. Because generally it's cultural, and their motivations are usually different based on cultural. I mean, a lot of the Russian, Eastern European propagating crimes financially motivated. A lot of the ones we're seeing coming out of Chinese-speaking countries are primarily 
intellectual property motivated and the ones seen coming out of uh, other places have their own motivations. So it's more cultural than it is per country and usually you can break that down on language and cultural lines. Is it true or have you found that these phishing attacks actually are remaining active longer? There's a cyclical deviance here. I mean, it comes and it goes, it comes and it goes. Here in our identity, we've done a lot better on our mitigation times. That means that from the time that a customer of ours alerts us to something that they would like for us to go mitigate, our times have come down on actually getting them mitigated. But, I mean, overall, the lifetime of them is generally fairly short, somewhere between 24 and 72 hours. And, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule. There's always this uh, small group of what we call immortals, and they're usually in bulletproof hosting facilities in primarily Eastern Europe or in places where we don't have a very good country-to-country geopolitical relationship, so it's very difficult sometimes to navigate between the appropriate organizations. Now, talking about things for the future or ways that we could address some of these vulnerabilities, how would you say, Paul, that DMARC and the new domain naming system could help defuse these types of attacks? Well, DMARC is a really good tool, actually. I mean, DMARC at least provides a feedback mechanism to the sender domain on a rejection based on some certain criteria. There's other identifiers in there, such as DKIM and uh, SPF, that are used to say if certain criteria is not met, I'm going to reject a message and send a feedback loop back to the sender domain, whether it's been spoofed or not. So it's a very good feedback mechanism, but for it to have more impact on the whole spam and phishing problem, it needs more wide-scale adoption. I'm not sure exactly if that ties into the expansion of the top-level domain, the generic top-level domain space, because actually I'm kind of the opinion that growing the breadth of the top-level domain space is only going to actually increase the problem, at least initially. And then beyond the areas that we've talked about, Paul, what other trends has the APWG noted in recent months, or at least since the beginning of 2013, that would be of interest here? Well, I'm not really sure. In fact, I'm going down to Buenos Aires to speak at the uh, APWG Counter E-Crime Summit, but on something completely unrelated to phishing, because APWG is trying to branch out into other areas that are not just anti-phishing. Of course, it still remains part of the core competence, but also includes malware and uh, e-crime and uh, of various sorts. But there's a lot of Internet hygiene. I mentioned that earlier, and that's a message that we're really trying to push right now and bring awareness to various constituencies around the world. Like the next one, again, I mentioned is in Buenos Aires, so we'll have you know, at least some local folks from South America and Latin America there raising the awareness level. And that's the one thing I like about that particular forum is getting out there and doing the awareness level because the criminals are getting smarter and we need to get smarter too and help people understand how they can help not facilitate this type of crime. Because there's a lot of awareness out there that people don't really even understand that if they're not doing proper hygiene at the organizational level, within the websites, in the infrastructure, then they may actually be facilitating this crime without even knowing it. Paul, I want to thank you for your time today. Oh, no, my pleasure. Again, we've just heard from Paul Ferguson of the APWG. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.